There will always be those who claim to have special rights over the rest of society, and the state is the most organized attempt to get away with it. Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone, and the Libertarian Institute. Today, we have Pete Quinones of Freeman Beyond the Wall. Uh, Pete, where is the best place to find your archive of work? Um, at the Libertarian Institute, you can click on my name up in the... Um... What do they call it? I forget what the, the header up there. And you can see the articles that I've written and also the episode, um, the episodes of my podcast. They are all loaded up onto the website. And uh, I know you've uh, put out a, a ton of work. If there is one podcast of yours that you'd uh, like to people uh, like for people to get an introduction in your work, uh, which one would you recommend? Recently, Jeff Dice, the president of the Mises Institute, and I did a um, we did it live in the same room at the Mises Institute where we talked about whether we see hope for people believing the state is illegitimate. And I think that's a good place to start. Episode 553. 553. Uh, also, we have Sal the Agorist of SalTheAgorist.com. Uh, Sal, uh, what is one episode that uh, you'd like to uh, introduce people to uh, to get an idea of what you're about? Um, I suppose um, I did an episode a while back called What the, what the Fuck is Agorism? So you can check that one out. This sort of just lays out agorism and the counter-economic theory in like a short little half-hour time frame, the best I could at least. So, Excellent. Uh, gentlemen, uh, very often when uh, I see us trying to spread the freedom message, people see it almost as though we are sort of imposing some new idea onto them. So I want to try to take a look at something like the Declaration and – uh, Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution, and see if we could sort of use that language to communicate the message of freedom, something that uh, people are already familiar with. So with regard to things like the need for political separation, unalienable rights granted by God, the right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, the right to abolish government, freedom of speech, and the right to bear arms. Uh, using the language of the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution, uh, how would you communicate the message of freedom to the average person? Pete? I mean, at this point, I don't know that that language, I don't know how much that language is going to land on people on the left. I, they, people on the left believe that everything, they wake up in the morning and everything's a tabula rasa. Whatever they write, that becomes reality today. And so there's no tradition there. There's no tradition to think of. So, I mean, I'm sure there are some center-left people that are still interested in the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, but the loudest people are not. So, I mean, I would be, be appealing to the right uh, mostly, and you know, I think that they – would be way more receptive, even if they don't know what the Declaration of Independence uh, Declaration says really says, or if they don't know what the Bill of Rights really says, they will at least be inclined to listen. And if you explain to them what it is, I think that they're, I think that's like the audience that, that will hear it if somebody's going to hear it. And I think the right being more religious when you talk about. Um, being in, endowed by your creator. I, I just think it's, they're more open to it. And I think they're more open to the concept of actually having rights. And I think they're more open to the concept of actually being left alone. I mean, I know they're not perfect. I know their status. I know that they can be really horrible, but it, it's really the, if you're going to like grow, if you, if you want, like, say you want a, a strong 3%, 
I think they're coming from the right. I don't know how many of them are going to come from the left. I don't discount it, but you know, from my reading of the last, especially the last six years, it just seems like the left is often in, in their own fantasy land. And um, if we we're going to reach anybody, I think it's definitely people who would be more on the right, would be more inclined to listen and talk about the Declaration and talk about the Bill of Rights. Sal, any ideas on using the Declaration of Independence constitutional language uh, to uh, convince someone or to make them more open to the ideas of uh, self-ownership and voluntary exchange? Yeah, yeah. I think that um, I think one thing we could do here is to sort of use their own medicine against them. Um, on, on page 26 of Anatomy of the State, Rothbard talks about how we should be aware of, of tradition and how the state can use uh, things like tradition and culture against us. Well, let's try to use those things against them. So I think that there still is a small percentage of Americans who um, they do have that spirit of liberty, that culture of independence and, and free mindedness. So I think that the sort of language that you're talking about, using terms like inalienable or the right to bear arms, those sorts of terms are still appealing to that group of society. My only concern, though, is that I'm not really sure we need to be reaching those people. You know, I, I think for by and large, those people are, are already with us. I mean, those are guys like like you two. Right. I mean, I don't really need to convince you guys of these things. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think there is still like a, a large piece of like Americana that that does it is susceptible to this. And I, I've been really plugging this book called The Political Brain, which is like I said, I think last time we were here, I spoke about it, it was it's a leftist uh, author, but he talks about using neuroscience and how terms can like evoke um, certain like neuroscientific reactions. So like, in other words, if we're talking about Japan and, and war and I use the term nuclear Right, you're not thinking of nuclear family. You're thinking of nuclear bomb, right? But if we were talking, if I was, if I had used other terms to prime you, like the family unit, or um, you know, mother-daughter relationships, and then I'll, and then I use the term nuclear, then you might be more likely to to uh, like anticipate the word family to come next. When, when the point I'm trying to get at here is that by using these terms, we can sort of still. Uh, sort of manipulate and steer the the, the political the discourse, but. My only concern, like I said, is that I'm not sure those people need to be reached. So, I had a former intelligence officer on my show, Chase Hughes, and he said if he could describe mind control in one word, it would be repetition. Do you guys have any um, thoughts on how we could maybe use repetition to uh, spread the ideas, Pete? I mean, at this point, my you know my voice is really through the podcast and writing. And I mean, I don't, as far as using repetition, I mean, the people that I'm communicating to who listen already, um, I, I assume that they don't agree a hundred percent with me. I hope they don't agree a hundred percent with me. God, that would be boring. Um, but in order for them to understand that maybe the way out of this is to go back to like the founders kind of thinking. And, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, I think, I think at this point Rothbard would probably agree with that. I mean, we know that Rothbard was a big fan of the founding. He, he saw it as a real shift in the ideas of Liberty, like a real kind of change in, in the West. And 
I guess really repetition would just be to talk about it whenever, whenever you can, whenever, just every episode, bring it up or every, every writing, Hey, this is, you know, I really think this is the way forward. I mean, it just, as far as like getting it out to using repetitions to get it out to people who we're not really communicating with now and we'd want to be reaching out to, I mean, it would just have to be something viral on social media or something like that. Something that you just hammer and hammer over and over again until like everyone's until everyone sees it, until it gets shared on every part of Twitter or every part of Facebook or something like that. I mean, that's really the only way that um, I think that we can reach use social media to um, reach as many people as possible. But yeah, repetition. If people keep saying, I mean, here's a good example of repetition. I mean, make America great again. And people know that. I mean, it's just, it was all over the place and you, you couldn't escape it at some point at, at one point. So, um, I mean, that's really the only, the only idea I have about repetition is, you know, you just have to have a platform in order to do it. And if you're going to do it on social media and it's going to reach everyone, you're going to have to have a lot of people doing it. I mean, a lot of people sharing it, like the Epstein didn't kill himself memes, you know, to the point where, you know, your grandmother saw those memes and everything. So, yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. Sorry, Pete, Keith, go ahead. No, I'm uh, done. The, the, the only the only thing that I oh. was going to say is what, what comes to mind is how they will use uh, shootings. And instead of giving any context, there have been thousands of homicides uh, in the United States. And this year they'll say, did you hear there was another shooting? Breaking news. And then they'll really focus on it. Breaking news, another one. This is in a sea of A, B, and C, all these other shootings. Did you hear about the white cop killing the black civilian again? And then they'll sort of, uh, they'll constantly use those kind of things to focus on when, of course, the reality is they're totally missing the idea that the police claim the right to rule everyone, not just one, one race of people. But it's that constant repetition. Whereas in uh, maybe 1990 or 1980, if you had seen something, you wouldn't say, oh, well, we really do uh, need some gun control. Oh, well, uh, we really do need some racism legislation because that wasn't in the narrative. At that time, it was, oh, the communists are at it again. Nicaragua, we've got to uh, keep giving the, uh, the, the state and the military industri industrial complex more money. Maybe we could use repetition like that. Um, Without exception, every time someone will uh, text me and say, hey, did you hear about another shooting? You hear about that? And of course, it's under the guise of, yeah, now, now, are you going to uh, start sending your guns in? It's like, even if we're just playing a numbers game, you're never going to catch up to the mass murder committed by government. So I'll play that game and win every time. Do you think maybe if we just say, oh, did you hear about uh, the the, uh, the the kidnapping of the uh, innocent uh, guys at uh, Free Talk Live because they didn't get permission from the crown? Do you hear the government uh, invaded another country and lied about it and sided with al-Qaeda again after pinning 9-11 on them? I mean, we, we can do the same thing. Sal's, uh, Sal, any ideas on repetition? Yeah, I got an idea. And we should text your friend every five minutes and be like, did you hear about the shooting in Chicago in the gun-free zone? Every two minutes, just text them nonstop until they just have to block you. Because, I mean, I, I really think that Pete hit the nail on the head on this one. It's all about social media. That's, that's really the, the tool that they're using here nowadays. There's a great book called Like War. I can't think of the author right now. But he goes into this and how they use hashtags <clears throat> and armies of bots, how Israel actually has, like, entire divisions of, of, of the Mossad whose only job is to just tweet the same hashtag. 
and they all just sit there like like I'm sure every country has it. Um, and it's sort of a common thing, but we don't. We don't have those sorts of things. Um, in terms of like repetition, though, rather than focus on rhetoric or like verbal repetition, let's try to focus on repetition of our actions. Let's try to focus on like re repetitively building competing institutions to these state-sanctioned nonsensical institutions like courts and banks and stuff like that. Let's build our own competing framework. That That's really what I'm focused on doing. And I think a lot of it has to do with like leading by action because people see you behaving repetitively and then they want to sort of, they, they see how it works and then they sort of try to follow in your footsteps. So that's just one thing that I, that's my, sort of my take on it all. And they can also see that uh, the chaos doesn't exactly rain down as we're so often told it will. If right. uh, if this group doesn't coercively interfere, things will be totally chaotic and evil and terrible. Everyone's just going to get screwed over every second by the next person behind them. And when they see that's not the case, well, then they'll have to, to engage in some uh, some cognitive dissonance. Uh, Johann Norberg wrote a book called Progress. He said, we make decisions and derive opinions not based on facts at our disposal from reliable sources, but by how many recent examples of something come to mind. So even though we might see, oh, things in Iraq and Afghanistan and there's these terrible wars, they're still on a smaller scale than the Afghanistan and Iraq wars in the 1980s. Still not as many civilian deaths. Um, any ideas on uh, getting people to uh, remember uh, recent examples or giving them many examples of when they engage in agorism to tell them that that is actually something safe and legitimate? Yeah. Um, homeschool your kids. Get them out of the government camps because they're not going to learn a true version of economics or history while they're, you know, it's like Malcolm X said, only a fool would, would let oh. their enemy educate their children. So. That's really the key here is just to get your kids out of the school, educate them yourselves, instill your own values in them. Don't let the, the political parties instill their values in your children. Um, you know, obviously we know that all of the stuff that they're taught in schools is nonsense, but they're not going to grow up to appreciate like a culture of freedom. Like we started this conversation off, they're not going to have an appreciation for that culture if they're indoctrinated into the sort of state version of history and economics. Pete, anything on that? Yeah, and remember, if you decide to take your kids out of school and you decide you're going to educate them on your own, and I mean, you're going to get attacked. They're going to call you right wing. They're going to call you. Who cares? They're your kids. They're under your care. They're your. Come on, come on. Don't worry about that. I mean, the. I mean, I don't have kids. If I if it if it turned out I did, if you know, all of a sudden, boom, the kid is not going anywhere near a government school. Ever. I don't <laughs> care. I don't care what I have to do in order to afford it. And it's really not that unaffordable. It's really not that um, that bad, considering you have all these groups that, you know, families that get together and, you know, it's like, oh, we're all, well, this person doesn't work. So, you know, they're going to meet at this house. So it'd be like 10 of them at a house and they're watching the videos from like the Tom Woods, I mean, uh, the um, Ron Paul homeschool or something like that. Then they get their socialization because, you know, they have to be socialized. I mean, I mean, God, the socialization is great to go, go to public school and get the shit kicked out of you. <laughs> you know, it's like friggin' Michael Malice says, goes the only place most people will experience violence in their life is actually in these government schools. So why would you send your kids there? If you want them to experience violence, 
let him start doing tai, you know, taekwondo or start doing jujitsu or something like that. You know, they'll get punched in the mouth. And I, you know, I wish more people in this friggin' society had been punched in the mouth when they were kids um, because it's just a society of wimps. But yeah, I mean, just get your kids out of school and don't care what anybody has to say about it. I'm telling you, people can afford this. It is when you start looking looking up other people who are homeschooling, other parents, you will find out that you're you're not going to be. I mean, of course, you're still going to be paying for if you, if you own a house, you're still going to be paying for the public school. But it's a great trade off. Continue paying for the public school, get that get them the hell out of there, and um, get them into a homeschool some kind of homeschool program. You I'll know, pay for I'll pay for the service. Just don't give it to me, please. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll pay for whatever right. you do. You know, the only place they're gonna they don't be. You know, your original question was like, how do you like make sure they don't learn these like this nonsense? Well, really, the only way they're gonna learn it is in a public school, right? If you just if they if they get their education from the internet or Ron Paul's curriculum or Tom Woods's uh, what is it Liberty Classroom or McClanahan Academy. Or any of these free versions of, of education on the internet, they're not going to learn this crap, right? In a competitive environment, no one would teach this shit because who would send their kids to an institution that teaches them falsities? Exactly. Uh, one of uh, the other things we have that we're really competing with here is uh, we're competing with people who know how to elicit sympathy. So when Khashoggi, the journalist, is killed, it's all over the news. I just saw it the other day on the TV. That's what made me think of it. However, you know, the, the Saudis killed this man. This is totally unjust. However, that got more attention than the entire Saudi U.S. British war in Yemen, the genocide in Yemen, ever did. And it literally goes back to that old a million deaths is a statistic. A single death is a tragedy. Uh, any ideas on how to elicit sympathy or make the violence of the, uh, the, the state real to someone who just sees it as an abstraction? Pete? Man, it's hard. That that's a tough one because you have all of that brainwashing of you know you have to support the troops. If you don't support, if you're not supporting the war, if you're not supporting the action, you're not supporting the troops. You know, Scott says that he thinks that that's really turning, and that people, especially people on the right, because really the only way these wars are going to end is if the people on the right start demanding it. I think that I, I think that that could be the way that they end um, people on the left. I, I, I have the feeling that if, if right wingers became anti-war, I can't see the left becoming like vocally pro-war. That just wouldn't seem to be. So you're, you're going to have right wingers saying we, we shouldn't be killing people over there. And then left wingers can be like, yes, we should. It doesn't seem like that would happen. It seems to me that if, if you got enough people on the right wing talking about that, but you know, you're going to have to spell it out to them. You're going to, you're going to have to communicate. I mean, there are some great organizations now that are on the right that are anti, that are doing anti-war stuff, but the most vocal ones now are on the left. And I'm not even talking about, I'm talking about like commie left. I mean, it, and they're, whenever they push the, the anti-war message, it's, it's also along with, and this is why we need free everything. And this is why, you know, capitalism is bad and everything. And it's like, oh, my God. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> once again, go back to social media campaigns. I just think that we just have to become. We have to be coordinated. I mean, 
if Tower Gang can coordinate like they are on social media, we can coordinate anti-war messages, anti you know, anti-government education messages. I mean, there there's a lot of things we could be doing. Uh, but we just have to get together and do it. And I know anarchists, oh, anarchists get together. Oh, that's such an oxymoron. Just shut up. I mean, come on. It just has to be done at this point. I mean, people, you have to come together in cadres and start doing shit and getting shit done, you know? And we can do it, man. If Tower Gang can friggin' spell out smallpox blankets under a <laughs> under an Elizabeth Warren tweet, we can storm social media. <laughs> With friggin' anti-war messages. Someone towered the scene and the unseen yeah. by Per Bielen the other day. That was, I'm like, wow, that's motivating. Not that that the changed the title. world, but we can really, yeah, that they got the, that they got the, uh, the, the whole title. Uh, Sal, any ideas on uh, eliciting sympathy? A million deaths is a statistic. One death is a tragedy. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, back to that book again. I mentioned the Political Brain by Drew Weston. This is the point that he makes. Is like. The difference between left and right is that people on the left, according to him, the people on the left, um, you know, if you if they rank their values, compassion comes out in the top. And the people on the right, when they rank their values, fairness comes out in the top. And according to West, and this is the inherent difference between, you know, the modern day liberals and the modern day conservatives, which we would call neoliberals and neoconservatives. But I think when I try to speak to people on the left, I try to use the language of compassion. And when I try to speak to people on the right, I try to use the language of fairness. Ever since I read this book, I've done it. I've had a fair bit of success doing it. So, like, for example, if I'm speaking to people on the left, I know you, you asked specifically about war, but if I'm speaking to people on the left um, about, like, economic issues, I try to show them how free markets are actually more compassionate and how regulated markets are destructive. Of course, you know, you're like swinging against the current, of course. I'm not denying that. But, you know, for every, you know, 500 people I speak to, maybe I get through to one. But, you know, it's still progress. And I think the same thing is true of people on the right. So, like, if we're speaking about something like war, I would be like, you know, couch your argument in the in the, in the the rhetoric of, of fairness. So, like, would you guys, you know, how would you react if someone blew up the school in your backyard? Would you want to, you know, go and shoot their country up? Of course you would. So, like, I try to just, like, explain it to people in, in that sort of language. Um, try to use, like, their own culture. Like, try to – you want to try to relate to them. You want to try to make them think that, like, you guys are on the same plane. Like, you guys are – you guys share the same values. Because if they don't think that, if they think that you have competing values, then it's immediately – their mind shut off. They don't want to hear anything you have to say because you're on the other team. You're on the other side of the fence. You're not, you're not on our team, right? The people are only willing to take – uh, constructive criticism from people who they think are on their like part of their their group you know definitely um james corbett very often it's the whole, talk, well, it's the oh, whole yeah. scott horton thing of attacking the right from the right and the left from the left yeah of course yeah, yeah. uh james corbett wrote a uh, newsletter about the importance of constructing a narrative so instead of you know uh people seeing the crown as an extension of people protecting them, Thomas Paine sort of flipped that around and said what we actually are, are is a group of people, a group of free people up against a, another organization separate from us who does not want us to be independent, free with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Do you guys have any ideas? I wrote down imposers and imposed upon just because... I like how Jeff Dice says that because it's one of those where I hear it and I know exactly what it means. 
average person might, but you, that uh, seems a little easy to explain. Uh, Pete, any ideas for constructing a narrative or changing the uh, narrative between the oppressed and oppressors, citizens and voluntarists versus the uh, status uh, advocating violence? To me, if you're going to create a narrative, I mean, and, and narratives, everything nowadays, I mean, the left owns the narratives. They, they just, any narrative that, that is out there is put out that is being adopted widely is put out by the left. It seems to me if you are going to have a competing narrative, it is going to have to be in language that they are familiar with. And the easiest one I I go back to and we started talking about this is the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness endowed by our creator. I honestly think that constructing a narrative around that, you know, and, you know, and we've talked about Vin and I have talked about how that's just magic. I mean, it's like you can't yeah. prove any of that. You can't prove, you know, that it's endowed by our creator. You can't prove that these are self-evident. These truths are self-evident. I mean, you can't. But it is something emotional, as much as you hate it, to be emotional, because libertarians want to be the smartest people in the room, and logic and consistency and the most intelligent. I mean, that's not how most people deal see things. They see things emotionally. So, I mean, I think that if you are going to construct a narrative that at this point, and especially after like this last election, if you are going to put a narrative together, it has to include magical language like you saw in the Declaration of Independence. And I really honestly think that somebody with a huge platform talking about that and using that language and going back to that could actually start changing people's minds. And if you start changing people's minds, I mean, you will change the culture. And we, we, we all know that it, it, it takes a culture change. And if you change the culture, I mean, even if you have to do it locally, even if you have to do it in your neighborhood, you know, where you're just getting together with the people you know and everything, you know, people who you live around, it's, you got to start somewhere. And I, I think it starts with that language. I don't, I don't know better language than what was in the Declaration of Independence. I mean, it just, it, it motivated a solid 3% of the, of the people to be like, all right, let's take up arms and kill these guys. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, that, and, that's and just so people know, that's not what I'm advocating. So, um, you know, this is in Minecraft, all everything there. OK, good. Well, no, that was just Pete supporting the troops. He was thanking the <laughs> troops for what they did. What's wrong with supporting the troops? Um, I, I actually uh, had that written down on uh, ideas, uh, how ideas go from fringe to the mainstream, not because they were great arguments and speeches, but they were good magic or mind control words. Raise the minimum wage. No fly, no buy. UBI now. Uh, gay marriage, of course, started uh, not uh, with some uh, principle of self-ownership and voluntary contract, but when Ellen came out in front of everyone on uh, on live TV. Of course, how did we go from, uh, you know, the Supreme Court outlawing the income tax to the income tax just being something everyone obviously accepts? Um, I see it now with expand the court the day that Amy Coney Barrett was sworn in, AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, boom, all tweeted, expand the court. This is how they're planting the seed, not because it changed anything that day, but they're slowly getting the public aware of things to come in the future. And of course, Medicare for all is such a brilliant slogan. Uh, Sal, any ideas on a narrative and using magic 
to communicate the message of freedom. So I, I think that there's two ideas here. I think the first is obviously like I think what Pete said, the 1776 narrative, which is what I that's what I called. It's my word for it. And like I said, I think that that still is valid to a lot of Americans. The issue there is that um, public schools, man, they have done decades and decades and decades of indoctrination to the point where these people are so dumbed down that they voluntarily want to put a muzzle on their face. So, I mean, I'm not I'm not sure that that is going to do it anymore. I'm not sure if three percent of the people are going um, to I, I maybe they will. Who knows? The alternative, I think, the alternative narrative, the one that I've been sort of focused on recently, I'm going to put on my left anarchist hat, is agorist class theory. And this is the idea of, like, crafting an us-versus-them narrative, showing them how, um, like, crafting our words and our, our content in a way that sort of pits, like, us-versus-them. Like, like, the politicians, the lobbyists, the bankers, uh, the corporate press, all of these lunatics, these these... They're all members of the same entity, as far as I'm concerned. The cathedral. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And if we could show how, like, they are sort of opposed to the average everyday individual, the every everyday American, I think that could really hold a lot of weight. And I think as the state gets closer to that and that final collapse that I believe is coming, um, I think that that narrative is going to hold more and more weight. We even see it today with the night. What was it? Um the Occupy Wall Street, right? That was what back in like 2008. We like it had this like left wing flavor to it, but like we were almost there. We almost had the people. Like if they, if you know, if if the protest took place at the Federal Reserve headquarters on Liberty Street rather than in Wall Street, we would have been great. We would have no problems with these people. But you know, it, it's like you said, it's a matter of crafting the correct narrative. And I think you know whether it's a 1776 us versus them or a class theory us versus them. That's the only way to do it. I love the uh, class theory that uh, Hoppe puts forward in his article, Marxist versus Austrian class analysis. He says, yeah, there's a small parasitic ruling class. Good job, Marx. And they have an ideological superstructure, media, education, etc. They have a system of property rights and a justice system, which has two totally different double standards. It's going to lead to more centralization and more instability. And then hopefully... Uh, will give us uh, the chance to resurrect something new out of the ashes of this illegitimate uh, phoenix that uh, has uh, been ruling over us. So when I use when I see it in that language, and instead of you know whites or the capitalists versus you know the ninety nine percent, if we do it, the uh, producers versus the parasites, people who engage in voluntary interaction, which is mutually beneficial, as Sam Conkin says in his value chapter in an agorist primer. Well, then that's very clearly in opposition to people who use coercion, which is one person benefiting at the expense of uh, of someone and, else. And 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 the one of the not to interrupt you, but one of the benefits here is that it appeals to people on on both sides, right? Yeah. So people on the left, they're, they're they're getting this sort of economic class warfare rhetoric, and the people on the right are thinking, oh, these you know the politicians are oppressing us. Small, this has got this element of small government to it. So it really does hit all of the the right areas. Definitely. Pete, any uh, final thoughts on that? No, I think Sal did really well bringing up uh, class theory. I think that, uh, you know, even Aaron and Aaron and I have been talking about class theory a lot and even Bird, uh, Bird's talking about it. It's uh, it seems like something that could be useful, you know, just have to get that out there. And one of the, the best resources on it is that episode you did, Pete, with Wally Conger. If anybody out there wants to learn more about it, that's that's where I would point them. Yeah. Excellent. I, 
I'll figure out what episode number it is. I can't remember. Yeah, can't that's remember. why I didn't say it. <laughs> I can't remember. Either way, I will make sure to uh, put it in the uh, description. Uh, Pete, what is your new documentary on the uh, police about? On It's about the police. No. You just led a me right into of... that. Well, here's, here's what it's going to be. It's going to be a history of the police. It's going to be... It's going to look at policing up until now, where it came from. I mean, it came from London. It's obviously started what we have today, started in London, went to New York, went to Chicago, and how it got to where it is today. And unlike the first documentary, which was decidedly libertarian, ANCAP, agorist, I mean, it's an anarchist documentary. This is not going to be. I mean, there will be libertarian solutions in there. But we are going to also present solutions while the state exists. And you know, we are going for the mainstream audience. I mean, we can we can put out a documentary about the police to libertarians. They're going to agree with anything we put in there. I mean, we could crap on the police for an hour and a half and talk about you know, all the murders they've done. Sure. OK, great. But no, we want to change people's minds out there, people, you know, normies' minds. So that's what the documentary is going to be. It's going to be, you know, how do we improve things? And, you know, we a great thing that we're going to we're going to have that I think will appeal to a lot of women is we're going to have Tate Fegley talking about the economics of policing and just how devastating it is locally and on a county level and on a um, on a state level of just how much waste there is and how much of that tax money that's being stolen from them is just for nothing. I mean, honestly, I've worked it out and I've written so much about it. I mean, you could get state policing down to 10% of what they do right now. And I mean, I can, you know, I have plans that it would just be, there would be really no violence at all. There would be, no, they wouldn't even need guns. I mean, for the plans, I, I mean, all they do now is investigate. It's pretty much all the police do now is investigate. And that's all they should do. I mean, you should just be like, okay, so you, you got, you know, somebody stole your bike. Okay, well, let's find it. Let's figure out it. And we could actually have police that would go and look and see if they could find it. Cause they don't do that now. Yeah. They just write a report so that you can, for insurance purposes or whatever. No, you actually have them doing a friggin' job. But then again, you'd only need 10 per, about 10% of what they do now. And um, you know, police unions are very, very powerful. Police unions are what is keeping weed yep. you know, de- uh, illegal in you know the majority of the country and federally. I mean, that, that's what you have to worry about. I mean, you have all these states that are le- have legalized weed or decrimmed weed and everything like that. And you could still have the feds sweep in and just friggin' take out dispensaries over. I mean, Obama did it in his first term endlessly. I mean, he was doing it all the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the whole point of this documentary is going to be, this is what the police, how policing started. This is how it escalated. This is what it's become right now. Really what, and then answer the question, what should it be? And, you know, you're going to have to present it in, a little bit of a private, a private kind of um, environment, but also, yeah, and we're going to have Dale Brown and, you know, of course, you know, talk about talk to him about stuff, but also in the state, it, in the, 
in the eyes of the state? How should it be with the state still existing? Because, you know, I mean, I don't know when the state's going to fall. I don't know if it's going to fall while I'm still, you know, on on the earth. I'd love to see it. But, you know, we have to come up with solutions for now or else we're just living in fantasy land. Exactly. Uh, Sal, uh, any uh, final thoughts on uh, the uh, police? I mean, I actually I have an episode with Pete and uh, Chris from Stateless Productions coming out in the Agora this week. Um, where we we all went into this. Um, sorry, it's been so long, Pete. It's been a delay That's getting cool. that one out. No but uh, th- this was the, the this was the issue that got me involved in this. And you know, one of the things I say in that episode is that we marched after they killed Eric Gardner. They strangled him for like a, a ten or fifteen cent tax on a on a public sidewalk. And after that happened, we had a Big plan. I mean, all the anarchists, man, in the entire tri-state area had got, we were all going to meet at Washington Square Park. And I actually thought in my head that I was going to see like ANCAP flags there. This is how, I mean, this is before Black Lives Matter really took off. This is how naive I was. Um, And this is only, what, 2016, 2015 they killed them? And of course, you go there and you see Karl Marx flags and Antifa and you're like, where the hell am I? Like, these people want more policing, but I'm here to protest the police. So what's going on here? So, you know, my, my whole thoughts on the police is that we, we can talk about things like, uh, you know, they get two weeks paid vacation and all these different things. But at the end of the day, it's all a result of the fact that the state has a monopoly. And it's not going to um, end until we can break that monopoly by, competing, by building competing institutions, which is why I'm a fan of... Um, things like Dale Brown is doing. And I know he's not like a, the perfect anarchist or anything like that, but like he is out there. He's, he's, he's doing more than I'm doing to stop the police. So, you know, God bless him. And I, I hope it all works out. I want him to succeed. And I hope, I hope that we see more solutions like this. Another one was cell 411, but that's, I, I don't know if that's still around. It was sort of like, like if you had an emergency, you sent out an alert to like members of your local community and they can come help rather than calling the police. So, you know, I'm all for as many options as possible, but the key is breaking that monopoly. And one of the and I think one of the key ways to try to communicate this to normies is and I mentioned this when we were when Chris and I were on Sal's show is maybe you start with, okay, what's the way that we can keep the police safe? What's the way that we can make their jobs safe for them so that they can go home every night? What's the safest way that they can do this? And let's start tearing it apart. And I, I was when I was on Sal's show, I hadn't even thought about this and I was a little high. So it helped um, <laughs> was I started talking about how as you start taking power away from the police, you start saying, OK, we need to take this power away, this power away. As you start stripping power away from the police and like get it down to like bare bones, more and you start seeing anarchy where. People are going to have to take more responsibility for themselves and protect themselves. And you can see where actual like libertarianism and anarchy can grow as you're taking power away from the police. And I, I think that's really that, that's something that um, I need to like flesh out a little bit more. I, I, I expect that once <clears throat> if we ever do make any progress in this regard, I think that once we get to the point where we start pushing back against the traffic laws, I think that's where the the state is going to put their foot down because they can't lose that. Right now, I think, I don't know the exact number, but I think it's like 80-something percent of municipal revenue is dependent on traffic citations. So 
they can't like if you once you tell them, hey, you guys can't hide in the bush anymore and wait for people who aren't wearing a seatbelt. That they can't do that. They won't comply with that. They they won't cooperate. And I think that's gonna, I I could see that causing some unrest in in the future. There was a book recommended to me. It's called, oh my gosh, I lost the title here. It's called Influence by Robert Cialdini. Uh, he works actually at Arizona State University. Well, it's a national bestseller, and a brief summary is Cialdini says, why is it that a request stated in a certain way will be rejected, while a request that asks for the same favor in a slightly different fashion will be successful. The success of a salesperson, fundraiser, or leader depends upon their ability to get others to comply. Here are six proven psychological principles to influence compliance and generate sales, raise money, and get people to join your cause. Rule number one, scarcity. We are more likely to buy something if we fear losing our opportunity to buy it. We are motivated by potential loss more than a potential gain. Uh, Sal, any ideas on how we could use the rule of scarcity to spread the freedom message? Yeah, so he says like we have to, um, you know, we're more motivated by the fear of loss rather than by the fear of gain. And I think that's true in the political context as well. Yes. I'm not really sure how we could translate that into a winning strategy, but the way I see that sort of playing out is that, you know, if we look at like political cycles, um, people are more likely to vote against something than they are to vote for something. So like if, if, if people hate Donald Trump, they're more likely to go out and vote. Right. But if people love Barack Obama, you know, they're still likely to go out and vote, but not as likely. So in my opinion, if we could sort of, um, you know, show people how how bad they're being treated and, and what the opportunity could be, what your loss is in terms of the say what per bylaw calls the unrealized, then you know maybe we could sort of use that strategy uh, to our benefit. I just had that realization with uh, the on the uh, Tom Woods show. A guy was talking about uh, artificial organs and how this could save I don't know millions of lives every year, but it's being regulated away by the state, of course, along with plastic trees. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable work being done that um, is being stopped so because things. people because people keep uh, coercively involving themselves. Think about house, DDT. the the thousand dollar houses that I did a. Uh, a show on Elvis Summers was doing them in California. A guy named Miles, I think, was doing them in uh, Washington. Jay Austin was doing them in uh, Washington D.C. Shut down by the feds in both cases. A house for a thousand dollars. Unbelievable. Why? Why are they shutting down? Uh, because they didn't meet uh, OSHA regulations, uh -huh, and even right. though they were on private property, this thing you're calling a house is not a house, so we're confiscating it. Well, wait until we start 3D printing them, because they're going to have a, a hell of a hard time regulating that. I can't wait. Uh, Pete, any ideas on the rule of scarcity? Well, I mean, the fear fear of law. <laughs> I think it all comes back to education. I mean, if people... What we're talking about here is we're talking about subconscious. People... Yes subconsciously having the fear of loss and it, it being more powerful than actually gaining something. It all comes back to education and people need to know about this. They, they need to know from a young age that this is a technique that people are going to use on you. It's propaganda. It's, it's just pure propaganda. And we have to teach as much as we can people how to read propaganda, how to recognize it. And, I mean, really, the when it comes to like the fear of loss and that whole thing, um, 
in sales, they call it the takeaway where you're like, um, where they'll be like, oh, you, you want this house and everything. It's like, oh, we have somebody else bidding on that house and it's called the takeaway. So you're basically taking the house away from them and you're going to see how they're going to go if they're going to go back in and go, no, I really want this and and jump into it. People just need to really be educated that that's what's happening. I mean, I, I don't know any other way. I mean, I guess fear of loss could be you could use it in some way with some kind of messaging where, you know, it's like, you know, we had this at one time, you know, we had, you know, only the father had to work and they could pay off the house by the time they were 35 and they could have two and the mother could stay home and everything and look at what we've lost and we need to get that back. I mean, maybe that in some way, but you know, I don't even know if people, the feminists have done such a great job of being like, well, you know, women aren't supposed to stay home. They're supposed to be out of the house working. And, you know, the, the state's supposed to raise your kids for you and everything. So it, it, it's a tough road, man. It's um, trying to get people to realize that they're being propagandized is one of the hardest things that you can do. And especially if you're, if you're not doing it very politely because they're going to feel embarrassed yeah. I... Uh, uh, another thing that they could lose is uh, your son. If they start us uh, right. into another war and the draft comes exactly. back, um, yeah, yeah. your house. There if you you're caught not chipping in the correct amount for uh, state schools, you could lose your business. You could lose the value of all your savings. Look, Zimbabwe, Germany, all these other places that have experienced hyperinflation. We're not just doing this for fun. There's actual evil dangers. That, uh, that that can come about. Your city could get bombed as the result of blowback or a false flag, but the state constantly provoking enemies everywhere. Yeah, don't pretend that there's no that there's no risk there. Uh, Sal, final words on uh, scarcity. You were saying? Yeah, no. <clears throat> Just going back to the concept of loss. I think like this is like where we sort of hit the left in like showing them like what they're losing out on because of these like illiterate economic policies. Um, <clears throat> one thing, and you guys might not. You, you guys might part with me on this one, but like one thing that I'd ha I've, I use this in terms just to like exemplify it is when I talk about global warming. So I try to tell people, okay, so we like, let's say we have this situation where the situation where the sea levels are rising. Imagine if we actually had a system of property rights in place where the Fort Lauderdale beach resort owner or the Bangladeshi rice farmer could actually sue Boeing and Raytheon for the bombs that they drop because you guys are polluting the atmosphere, sea levels are rising, and I'm losing out on property because of it. But we don't have those property rights in place. And if we did, you know, that's just one example of how I try to use um, the concept of loss to try to show people on the left. Yeah. That's real Love world it. stuff, man. That's real world stuff that works. Yeah. Rule, rule number two, social proof. When uncertain, we look to others to see how we should act. This is this is what made me a libertarian. I like to say it was logic and reason because I kind of think it was. But seeing a bunch of uh, voluntarists in suits and ties at this IHS seminar made it okay. It's like, hey, it's okay to embrace. You're not a trash can thrower if you believe this. It's you know a bunch of guys you know who are just like you. So that social proof is really what I think pulled me in. If I had to bet, you know that was probably the irrational side of my decision making. Pete, ideas on social proof. I mean, like getting people over to our side. I think Tom Woods was one of the first people I heard say he's like, we need more people who are talking about what we're talking about, who are successful. Yeah. You know, who. 
I mean, and I don't know what that looks like. Um, a big house. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't I don't desire a big house. I can live in a much nicer place than I live in right now. But it, it's just not important to me. You know, nice cars are not important to me. You know, I'd rather have a ton of crypto on my phone. Um, but making if people desire, you know, if they think that, oh, success is this, then show it to them. I mean, we we should all be successful. I mean, we should. Be, I mean, we're talking about a an ideology where you have entrepreneurs where where you we, we talk about the entrepreneur as like the key the key to economics. I mean, that's the first Per Bielen's book. The first chapter is on the entrepreneur, and I just don't see enough. You know, and the left already has like this. This thing of, oh, all libertarians are just rich kids. They're rich people who just want to keep their money and everything. It's like, I wish. Yeah, I wish yeah. there were, I wish all libertarians were, you know, wealthy and, and successful. And I think that we, this ideology would be all over the world. I mean, just permeating everywhere. I mean, I really just think that that, that's what it is, is that we, ha we need to have people who are successful in, worldly stuff and pe things that people desire in the culture want and um people will seek to copy that and people will be like hey i want to be like how do i you know what do i need to study and everything and then you can hand them pear's book yeah uh sal any ideas on social proof and looking to others to see how we should act i also think he's just talking about numbers here so um while of course more successful people increases the legitimacy in the minds of the listener just the fact that instead of one or two people there's a few thousand people and they have meetings all over the place uh yeah they had these big crowds there's tons of podcasts this is a real uh, big thing that a lot of people uh see uh, see as valid well i mean in a lot of ways our social proof was always economics right we always had like like the whole discipline of economics was sort of supporting us and supporting our our propositions and our premises but then the left launched and the keynesians launched this campaign of, of revision revisionist economics where now you have these like minimum wage studies that are do they are literally designed and funded to try to disprove real minimum wage studies and this is what they do now so like they've 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 recognized that our social proof were these economic arguments, these economic research papers, and they, they've sort of tried to undermine them. In another sense, I think social proof is sort of relative to the individual. Like, like you said, like, you know, seeing people in suits, like, did it for you, right? But maybe, like, for Tom Woods, it's like more successful people. Um, whatever the case is, it's relative to the individual. For me, um, I never wanted to be like the wacky anarchist. <clears throat> and then I think I've, I think you guys know the story. I, I was I was listening to the Tom Woods show one day. I was still like a communist minarchist at this point. And he had mentioned uh, he was heaping praise on some historian named Ralph Rako. And I looked up Ralph Rako because I'm a big history nerd. And I'm like, man, this guy is sort of like he reminds me of someone's grandpa. Right. Just like he reminds me of like he's just a very grandfatherly old man. And like that's what enabled me to like have the conference. OK, all right, let me give this Rothbard guy a, a shot. And then it was all, you know, it's all, it's all downhill from there. Yeah, that uh, the, there's so much overlap between that and authority. We are more likely to buy from someone who appears to be an authority in their industry. The next one is liking. We buy from people we like 
And we like people who are like us, similar interests, background, lifestyle, who compliment us, who spend time with us, and who we find physically attractive. Any ideas on liking, Pete? Well, I mean, it's the laws of attraction, I think. It's, you know, I I think I have a tendency to attract people who are obnoxious idiots from New York, you know, like that kind of, you know, people like myself. Yeah, you know, so the, um, yeah, and there are other people i mean and but no i mean i meet people when i meet people who um listen to my show it's always just such a diverse crowd and it's really cool and everything but i mean i think that there are a lot of people when you start talking about your own story and something like that and you know, that's an old sales thing is tell your story you know make yourself human and you know people are like they can relate to it you know it's like i talk about you know how i'm in automotive and um you know, so somebody who's an, somebody who's a repairman, a mechanic or something like that, you know, we can talk. And then you have like the this whole rash of podcasts that have come up from vets. And I mean, yeah, they, yeah if, if I'm talking to a vet, I'm like, go listen to Biting the Bullet, you know, so you, you can hear what these guys have to say, what they're talking about, telling their story. I think that, you know, we you know, find your crowd and um, you know, I, I think. I have a tendency to attract people who are a little more abrasive than um, than than others. But, you know, then you have someone like Keith, who's just a really, really nice guy. And I'm sure he attracts people who are really, really nice guys. And you have somebody like Sal, who's a really nice guy, but he's sort of, you know, he's got that Jersey attitude, too. Where, you know, so, you know, I think we could attract a lot of the same people. (laughs) Sal, any any, uh, ideas on liking? I, I think Pete hit the nail on the head again. Um. You know, you have to sort of operate within your group. Um, again, going back to what I said earlier, if people don't think you share their values, they're probably not going to uh, take your, they're not going to put much weight into your opinion. <clears throat> um, but I want to go back to the one that we skipped over real quick, if you don't mind, authority, because I think that's that's really important. Um, you know, I, I can tell people, and I've had this experience in my show, I've done numerous episodes on the Civil War and what a lie and what a scam it is, and I always get pushback. Recently, I had Brian McClanahan on the show, who's like a PhD in history. The guy like does this stuff for a living. And the response was completely different. All of a sudden, rather than like people pushing back against me, they're like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. I never knew that. I'm thinking to myself, wow, maybe the difference is that like he has a PhD, you know, maybe he's just that the fact that he's like an actual professor. And the same thing goes with like economics. Like if I talk about economics, it's one thing. But when I have Walter Block and Per Bialen on the show explaining these these topics in depth, I get a much different reaction. So I think that's also important. I've gotten that too, where I've just listed uh, that our ideas kind of go back. I'm like, yeah, uh, sort of uh, the foundations were really laid by this this lawyer in uh, the 1860s, Lysander Spooner, this guy in France who was a real excellent economist, wrote tons of books, Frederick Bastiat. That just increases the legitimacy radically because they think, of course— it's, you know, it was the Koch brothers in the 70s who uh, started the ideas of self Who are funding your podcast, right? That, that's what they think. I, uh, please, I wish. David, David I wish. Charles, if you're listening, please, I'll take the money. Contact me. Uh, next rule, escalating commitments. When we make a small commitment, we are significantly more likely to make a larger commitment. So when I have said, yeah, uh, I love the ideas that you have of, you know, equality and my body, my choice, would you ever... Let's say let's say if we take those and we extend that to the commercial realm, voluntary exchange in economics. Is that something you would consider? That is really powerful. 
I haven't gotten people to change their minds on the spot, but I've gotten a lot of messages, emails that that really uh, woke people up to seeing this is actually what we're talking about. This is not something totally radical, corporations controlling us. It is what you believe in applied consistently. Pete, any ideas on escalating commitments or consistency? Yeah, I think about foreign policy, where if you can just get somebody to be like, okay, all right, I see that the Afghanistan war is just useless and everything like that. Then you can just, if you can get them to admit that, then you can start explaining Iraq. You can start explaining Somalia. You can start explaining Yemen. And you can just use it to pile on. I mean, you know, I was, I came into this going, this Iraq war is really stupid, but probably Afghanistan needs to be, needs to keep going and everything. And then it was, you know, after listening to more Ron Paul and reading Ron Paul's speeches and stuff like that, I was like, oh yeah, this is just ridiculous. This is ridiculous. We don't need to be in any of these wars at all. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that like foreign policy is one of the easiest places to think about that. You just get them to question, you get them to question one thing and then you can just start talking about other things and they may not be there right away, but the dominoes start falling. And um, yeah, I think that is, I think that's clearly, clearly something that people in our realm do is they start talking about, you start talking about property taxes. Isn't it ridiculous that you never own your own house? And then you can just start talking about other taxes and you can just keep going on down the line. Yeah, I think, I think once you, once you get somebody to agree to one thing, you can start, you can start toppling all the dominoes. Especially when there's no innocent yeah. explanation for uh, siding with Al-Qaeda in Syria and there being emails where uh, the top brass of the military and uh, journalists actually know about this. Or you could say, uh, how stupid are those Soviets getting bogged down in Afghanistan, losing their empire? Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, that, that actually reminds me of something else going on today. Um, Sal, any ideas on consistency and escalating commitments? So I think what you guys are talking about <clears throat> is is reductio ad absurdum, right? This is a, a logical technique that like people use in arguing where you get your your opponent to agree to one sort of premise and you show how that premise leads to uh, absurd conclusions that violate their beliefs, right? Walter Block is is a master, a master at reductio. And um, you know, it it works best in foreign policy like Pete said. Hey, you're a Christian. You don't believe in, uh, you know, harming innocent people. Guess what your tax dollars did this weekend? Or, um, you know, you believe abortion. in abortion, uh, abort, yeah. ab abortion. I mean, yeah, vaccines, um, all of it, all of it. You know, you believe your body, your choice. OK, well, then you don't mind if I don't if I don't wear a mask. Right. So, I mean, really, the list goes on and on because and the reason why the list goes on is because the left and the statists are so illogical nowadays that really, I mean, it's almost like shooting fish in a barrel. You can't really miss at this point. Like, it's it's, it's sort of ridiculous. Um, yeah, no, I would just say use reductio. It, it applies in basically every single scenario you can think of. There's a reductio. You just have to find it. And if you want to sort of get good at it, pay attention to Walter Block. Watch, watch the way he uses it. Walter Block is great. He goes, there should be trade barriers. So I can't trade with my neighbors. I can't leave my house. I got to produce everything. And I go, well, that that actually is funny. And he's been saying that since the 70s in uh, defending the uh, the undefendable. What a great, uh, what a great. Yeah, the three is coming out soon. Uh, I can't wait. I can't wait. Final rule, exchange or 
reciprocation. When we receive something of value, we feel morally obligated to return the favor. I've had this where I have just complimented someone on how they were really excellent because anyone sort of in to politics, no matter where they stand, they're probably right on something except the neocon that I debated. That was literally the exception. Everyone else is right about something. And you can take that and say, gosh, that's a really excellent point. Makes me think about A, B, and C. Would you consider, et cetera? Now you're already on their side. Any ideas on reciprocation, Pete? I mean, it's just, this relationship building. There's no, to me, there is no better way to convert somebody's thinking than to just befriend them yeah, and start talking to them. And once, once they assent to something that you are talking about, then it's just so much easier. You know, I, this one, this one's tough because it, I mean, I I think this is going to be personal to everyone. Because people build friendships differently, they build relationships differently, they build um, camar- you know, camaraderie differently. And um, you know, the way I look at it is that there are people in my life, in my private life, that I have turned, I have changed their mind on so many things just because we're friends. And yeah. just because, you know, I will... I will say I agree with them on something that I actually agree with. Yeah. That, that, so it's like, Hey, yeah. I mean, you actually changed my mind on this. Now listen to this and you can have this go back and forth and you know, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I've, um, I think, you know, my one, one really good friend, close friend that I have here in, in Atlanta that I can talk to about anything, about anything. And, um, yeah, I, I think it was just relationship building. It was just the fact that knows I'm a good person. Trust me. And we, we have a back and forth. Sal, final ideas on reciprocity? Yeah, um, I'm just going to echo what Pete said. And I, I would also add, um, you know, it's about like treating people with respect. You know, if you when a lot of times you'll hear it on Pete's show. He has people on often that he disagrees with. And he's able to maintain a cordial atmosphere during the show because he's not like, what the fuck are you talking about? You idiot. You're a moron. Like, you can't you can't go down that road. And once people see that you you you're entertaining their ideas, even though you disagree with them, then they'll do the same for you. So a good example of this, I just had Ben Burgess on the show, who I, I know you know Keith. Um, I, know I don't know if you, yeah. you know who he is. Yeah, Keith? I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Full fledged socialist, complete Marxist, but he's he's a very bright dude. And I, I and I said to him, I was like, look, like I started off the show by saying. I know you're approaching this from the from the perspective of, a, of logic, right? You're making a logical inquiry into the social sciences to draw these conclusions. So am I. Let's find out where we're diverging here. And we had a really great conversation. And I, I there was a couple times when like um, both he and I were like, yeah, you know, you you make a great point. I hadn't thought about that recently. So, you know, I think it's about you have to really come into this with an open mind. You can't think to yourself, I'm right. Like I'm not here to prove my point. I'm here for the actual purpose of conducting inquiry into the nature of reality. I want to find out what the truth is. If tomorrow I hear evidence that agorism is wrong and I, it convinces me and egoism or mutualism or whatever other philosophy is correct, then that's what I'm going to promote tomorrow. You know, and that, that's just the way you have to be, I think. People don't respect you 
if they think that you're in it just, you know, to promote something blindly. Like, they, you need to believe in it in order to be effective about it. 